So this morning, we start on a quick journey. This one's going to be a four-week journey, as is typical in the holiday season. Quick journeys. Maybe some of you took a little bit of a trip during Thanksgiving. Our family went down to visit my brother-in-law down in the Bay Area, which was a journey and adventure itself. (laughs) Uh, But we spent a couple days down there. We thank God for the time we had with family. Uh, But these journeys sometimes are quicker, sometimes they're longer. We're going to take a break in our journey through Philippians and now take just kind of a quick journey through different perspectives of Christmas. As I've already mentioned uh, a little bit ago, introducing this, um, if you want a blessing, even in your family, one event that happens in your family, maybe you've noticed this, especially with little kids, one event that happens in your family, if you want to see more of, get, gather more of an appreciation for that event, ask any one of the children that observed it. You're going to get a little twist, a little, you're going to get a little bit different of an angle of what that event, what happened at that event. A little different perspective. Well, our goal the next couple of weeks is to gain an appreciation for the Christmas event, the incarnation, Christ coming in the flesh. And how we're going to do that is by looking at it from different angles, different perspectives. Obviously, we're not going to gain all of the different perspectives from all of the different people involved in the plot line of the incarnation, but we're going to spend some time with some of them. We're going to start where we should start today, and that is the perspective of God the Father. In the mind of the great creator and sustainer of all life, how did he see the birth of Jesus Christ? Um, then we're going to go from there. We're going to take next week. Uh, if you want a blessing, think about the incarnation, the birth of Christ from the perspective of angels. What did they see? These angels created sometime before human beings observed all of what happened in human history. They've observed it. Now, I'm not going to preach next week's sermon right now. So you have to come back next week because we're going to look at the perspective of the angels. What angle are they seeing all of this unfold? Then the next week, we're going to look at it from the perspective of the shepherds. What did the shepherds experience? Being shocked out of their sandals in that pasture. What did they experience? What led up to that experience in the field? What proceeded from that experience in the field? And then we're going to As we get closer to uh, Christmas Day, we're going to take it from the perspective of these, well, we we sing it, these three kings of Orient are. We don't know if there are three of them. We know they had three types of gifts. But we're going to look at it from the angle of the wise men. And then you're going to have to wait a whole other year. (laughs) Because next year, we're going to look at it from Mary's perspective and Joseph's perspective. I love the Christmas season because we get to look at it from different angles. So if you're ready, right now, we're going to take some time to look at it from the angle of God the Father by starting with this thought. Some ridiculous guy up there looking at his watch. How many of you in this room just love, love, love to wait? I mean, I'm going to tell you, I mean, maybe God's given you the special gift of waiting for hours and hours. I would say probably not. I mean, if, if you're, 
And if I'm honest, I can hardly wait five minutes for anything. But when we think about the Christmas story, I want us to think of it in terms of waiting. We struggle with waiting. The fact is, waiting is a way of life. Everything we do at some point will lead us multiple times through the day for waiting for something. What are we talking about? I love this. Have you ever watched a child wait for a birthday party? Whoa! When is it happening? How many are coming? I mean, we're three months away from the birthday party. We're getting details nailed down. They cannot wait. When is it happening? What about couples waiting for the big wedding day? I remember as a couple, Hannah and I, going through college, we started 150 days in and just read the Psalms backward all the way down to Psalm 1. We couldn't wait for our wedding day. Waiting with anticipation. Here's some other more trivial ones. Drivers waiting for the heavy traffic to clear. Oh, boy. Uh, Spending some time down in the Bay Area, even on Thanksgiving Day. It's like, I don't know how people do this. I mean, we're talking about amazing chunks of God's grace as you travel. (laughs) Drivers. What about grandmas and grandpas waiting for grandkids to get to the home? How many grandmas and grandpas here this week were like, couldn't wait till your grandkids got there? And then after two days and like 3,000 bruises, you can't wait for them to leave. Go home. Too many bruises on my shins and my knees. Waiting for the big game to start. A couple big games happened this weekend. Waiting for the eternal practice to end. That coach that realizes that we have a life and he needs to blow that whistle so we can go home. Waiting for the crazy weather to pass. Which, praise God for some moisture here. Like, it dumps all at once here in Reading, apparently. Snow and all. I ate my words from last week. It did snow this week. Waiting for the stupid light to turn green. Waiting for the doctor's assistant to call your name in the waiting room. Waiting for the DMV monitor to flash. Number G67, you're up and you can come up and we can send you back home to get more documents. So you can wait some more. Waiting for the waitress and the waiter to bring your food out. Waiting for the stewardess to call your zone to board the airplane. Waiting for the preacher to get through his introduction so we can get into the sermon. (laughs) We're waiting, right? Life is about waiting. I want to say in all those illustrations, though, those ridiculous illustrations, probably the epitome of waiting and my observation would be waiting for the birth of a child. We've had some amazing blessings, even in our church congregation the last couple weeks. Um, Some even still waiting for the birth of of a child. But when we think about the birth of a child, three quarters of a year spent waiting for this child from the, the first doctor's visit and the first ultrasound and the first heartbeat. You cannot wait for this baby to come. And as time progresses and as this poor mom carries this baby and just inside of her and just becomes bigger and bigger and slower and slower, it's like this baby cannot come quick enough. From wanting to, from carrying this child, be so 
thankful to carry this child in the womb to wanting to carry this child in a blanket instead. Patiently waiting for this child to come. Okay, here's a perspective question. When you carry this child for three quarters of the year, can you imagine waiting for the birth of a child for 4,000 years? Okay, that gives us a little perspective of what's happening in this storyline today. 4,000 years waiting for something special to happen. When we talk about Christmas from the perspective of God Almighty, the great creator and sustainer of all life, there's a bit of waiting that's happening. However, I want to be very clear this morning. That's not the exact same waiting that I mentioned in all of these other scenarios, as ridiculous as they may be. When we talk about God the Father, and any time we talk about waiting, we want to be clear that there's a massive difference Because God the Father is in complete control of every single second. I'm going to tell you, I am not in control of what happens at the DMV or the traffic light. I am not in control when it says waiting in traffic. If it was me being in control, I would get there 10 minutes ago. But God the Father is in complete control in his sovereign hand of every single second of history. And what we're going to look at today is in this waiting that the Father did for Jesus Christ to be born, he perfectly placed different clues along the way. 4,000 years of anticipating a rescuer coming. And through these 4,000 years, as you open your Bibles, you see different clues about this rescuer. More of the story is given and more of the story is given. So what are we going to do this morning? We're going to see from this text, Galatians chapter 4, that God and his sovereign hand had things timed out perfectly. Can we see this in the text? If you would look with me at Galatians chapter 4, on the back of your handout you'll see verses 1 through 7. I'm going to jump right down into verse 4 right now. If you would follow along as I read verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this morning we are going to meditate on these verses. All of the components of this waiting, this perfect time. In this epistle, Galatians, we're talking about Paul the Apostle writing to a region of churches in Galatia. And in this region, there was some false theology that was, that was making its way in there. Especially in regards to justification by faith. Especially in regard to God bringing in the Gentiles into this salvation plan of justification by faith. There was a lot of doubt for God's plan. And Paul writes to these churches in Turkey, and what does he say? God precisely planned this. This is not something that, you know, around the turn of, you know, from B.C. to A.D., all of a sudden God's like, yep, now, okay, I, I guess, it's about right time. 
Now, this is something that God and all of his sovereign plan planned before the foundations of the world. The exact right time. So Christmas, from God's perspective, is a meticulous, methodical plan coming to fruition. And we see that in this passage. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come. I highlighted it up here because this is such an amazing phrase. Basically, if you want to put down there exact, right. It is the exact right time. At the exact time, something happened. I mean, a God who is not bound by our time, and we need to understand that. Anytime you bring time into the same discussion with God, we need to realize that God Almighty is not bound by time. However, he plants himself into the time of his creation. He methodically works in the time of his creation to make something happen. And we can let this sink in. He placed himself into the time of his creations and sovereignly ordained the exact time to send his son. Culturally, the exact time. Socially, the exact time. Religiously, the exact time. Academically, politically, geographically. God the Father knew the exact time when he would send the rescuer. And Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, at the exact right time, God sent Jesus the rescuer. So this morning, I want us to think of this a little bit more, and I want us to think of it in terms of these two main points, and we'll go quickly through these. First of all, the birth of Christ was the right time for God to reveal the rescuer. Then we're going to look at that. It doesn't stop there in this text. It very clearly works on to the next verses, and we want to touch on that this morning as we'll unpack that through the next couple weeks, but The birth of Christ, from God's perspective, was the right time to initiate the redemptive plan for the cursed, the redemption of the curse. It's time to act in this situation. It's time to put it to work. This plan that's been formulating, it's time to go. It's go time. It's redemptive time. It's redemption time. Let's start with this one, though, the birth of Christ was the right time to reveal the rescuer. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In this passage, we see these words, God sent forth. This is an intentional act of an almighty God. God the Father sent his son uh, very simply, it's like this, to send someone a special, on a special mission. Some of you have been in military, and you're sent for a certain deployment, a certain mission. Uh, in a very practical way, I know we have um, some law enforcement in this room. When you're responding, you're responding to an event that happens, you're responding with certain duties. The dispatcher, the dispatcher says, go there, and this is where you go. You answer the call. I remember growing up. How many of you remember this show? Maybe this is dating myself a little bit. Rescue 911. Anybody watch that? Yeah! 
I used to love that because every single episode I'd be freaked out by what was happening. And then all of a sudden they'd call in and the dispatcher would send people. And it's like, yeah, go get them. It was a dispatch. Go get the job done. I want us to think of this, in turn, this whole scenario from God's perspective as being God dispatching Jesus. The time is now. I'm sending you out. Now very clearly we want to realize that God sent forth his son. This is not just some random angel that God sent. This is God in the flesh. We need to be very clear on that. When we talk of his son, this is clearly Jesus Christ, the humble Messiah. This is Jesus Christ, the obedient rescuer. This is the second person of the Trinity, if you want to look at it that way. Who was, and we've talked about this already as we've gone through Philippians, who was fully God and fully man at the exact same time. Why? So that he could fully redeem. That equation can't fall apart in any one of those aspects. If God was not fully man, he could not fully uh, recognize the sins of man. If God was not fully God, he could not fully participate in the holiness of God. We needed a full God, a full man, in order to have full redemption. So what happened is God sent forth his son. His son, very clearly in this passage, was born. Born of a woman, born under the law. There's some very key clues given in this verse, and we're going to kind of unpack these through as we walk through the Old Testament today. Born of a woman. What's the clear, specific reference here? It's referencing humanity. Jesus Christ had to be fully human in order to fully save. He was born of the human race a human race that was under, as we look at this passage, that was under the bondage, the slavery of sin. Born of a woman, born under the law. I absolutely love the story of the Bible. That book you have on your lap because what happens, especially as you go through the Old Testament, it unfolds more and more of the story. Some of you may like mystery books. When I was younger, I did not like to read But there was one book that would get me. It was a Hardy Boy mystery. I'd pull that thing out and it was like, what? I'd sit there and my mom and dad would be like, okay, you got an hour of quiet time. You can either nap or read. So I'd pick up this Hardy Boy book and guess what would happen after an hour? It breezed by and there'd be different clues along the way. You know, sometimes as we we think of this mystery type thing, something revealed later, planned and now revealed, we realize that we can't just pick up chapter 20 and learn the whole story. What do we need to do? We need to go back and unfold this. The only difference, by the way, I need to point this out, the big difference between a Hardy Boys mystery is there's uncertainty. There is absolute certainty in the mysteries of the scripture, the mystery of the scripture. But at any rate, when we look at the scriptures, we want to go to chapter 1 and kind of unfold it as we go. And what we're going to do today is just take some very simple snapshots from God's perspective of what he's doing all along the way to lead to that cave, to lead to that manger, that stable scene. And where I want us to start this morning is realize that this Messiah, first of all, was promised through Eve. 
passage we just said, we just read, he was born of a woman, born under the law. This is very clear in your Bibles in the book of Genesis. What's happening at the beginning of your Bibles? Not only did God sovereignly create the world, but he also created his prized creation, man and then woman, made in the very image of God, as our scripture says. And what happened? God gave them restrictions, if you remember in your Bibles. Restrictions that Adam and Eve clearly disobeyed. But I love this. Because where is the gospel in your Bibles? It's at the very beginning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is preached in the first three chapters of our Bibles. I love this because in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve had sinned against a holy God, what did a holy God do? Must read it. He promises this, and actually he promises this to Satan in a discussion. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, we're getting clues here, brothers and sisters, he shall bruise your head, speaking to Satan. And actually, as you go in the New Testament, you see this word bruise is more than just bruise. It's a crushing. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What is this? Without going too deeply into this story, what's happening here is God the Father is promising that even though Adam and Eve had rebelled against him, he's making a promise that the rescuer is coming. I'm going to send a rescuer. So Christmas, from God's perspective, is the rescuer's coming. 4,000, depending on how you slice and dice history, a basic four or 5,000 years looking ahead. God the Father promising promising to Adam and Eve, and particularly in this verse, Satan, the rescuer's coming, and guess what, Satan? This is a threat. Beware. You're going to bruise his heel. How is that going to happen, by the way, brothers and sisters in Christ? The heel bruising happened at the cross of Calvary. As I was talking to my family last night, what happens when you get a bruise? It heals. A bruise is a lot different than some of the other injuries you can go to. What healed that bruise was the resurrection. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, what happened to Satan? His power was absolutely crushed. So the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 3, what do we have? We have a clue saying, hey, rescuer's coming. Look for him. It was promised through Eve. And we're going to have to quickly go through this. Promised through Abraham. I mean, you carry on through your Bibles and you get to this beautiful uh, portrayal of this person, Abraham, the father of Israel. Abraham called on God to obey him. Abraham obeyed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But there's something very important in the story of the Bible. Another snapshot, another clue as God is revealing his rescuer. What is this clue? I put down here Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and actually you could probably write down um, Genesis 15 all the way to Genesis 18 because we gather these clues all the way through Genesis 12 through 18 and even beyond to Isaac and Jacob. But what's the promise? I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And here it is. In you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is beautiful because what are the three primary things that God promised to Abraham? 
in these verses, but in also the following and the preceding. What, what do we have here? Three things promised to Abraham. Land, offspring or seed, and here's where it belongs to, here's where you and I are in the Old Testament. In Abraham or through Abraham, all the families of the world will be blessed. What is he saying? Abraham, that Messiah, he's coming through you. So not only is he coming, being born of a woman, promised to, uh, in the scenario in the garden, he is now, we find another clue that he will be born of Abraham's line. He will be of Jewish descent. All right, can we go on now to another clue? I love this, promised through Moses. When we say through Moses, we're not necessarily saying through his offspring, we're saying through his ministry. What happened through Moses? If you remember the story, a lot of time has passed through the story, but as you go into Exodus, you find the ministry of Moses. And another very important clue is given. And these clues, actually it's a multi- multiple clues, these clues are found in what's known as the law, the Old Testament law, particularly the ceremonial law of God. This law of God is giving us clues. In fact, as you dig into the Old Testament ceremonial law, especially in regard to worship of Yahweh, you find these different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle and then later uh, temple. Every single item in the tabernacle and temple, you know what it's doing? It's a clue saying, the rescuer's coming. Hey, the rescuer's coming. He's coming. Every single one of these pieces of furniture is pointing to the rescuer. He's coming. The rescuer's coming. I mean, I jumped a massive jump into the same text that we're looking at now in Galatians chapter 3 because I just wanted to read what Galatians 3 says about the whole Mosaic law scenario. Here's what he says. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Some of your translations will actually say the law was the tutor to bring us to Christ. Or some of them might actually say the law was your schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The point here is that what is the law doing? It's guiding us. It's guarding us, saying, look this way. Don't look over there. Don't look over there. Look to Jesus. Look to the rescuer. That is what the Old Testament law does. The law is pointing, the rescuer's coming, the rescuer's coming, the rescuer's coming. In fact, if I could read the rest of, I mean, I put up here verse 24. Listen to verses 25 and 26. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is beautiful. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming all the way through the Old Testament, through Eve, through Abraham, through Moses. And now we find in 2 Samuel, a lot of time passes now, but we find through David, through King David, another clue, another snapshot. In our Bibles, in 2 Samuel, we find King David. This story of King David, King David wanted to build a house for Yahweh. Do you remember the story? And Yahweh said, God said, no, you're not going to build a house for me, David, but I am going to build a house for you. That house is the kingly line from which the Messiah will come. So we're finding different clues. Here's the clue given to David. 
2 uh, Samuel 7, 12 and 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fa- fathers, you're dead. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What's the point? We have here another glimpse of this rescuer. Not only will he come through Eve, the seed of Eve, born of a woman, not only will he come through Abrahamic descent, not only will he be seen as fulfilling the Old Testament law, but now very clearly he will come from the line, the kingly line of David. Snapshot, 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 all leading us to the birth of of, of the Christ child. So in Galatians chapter 4, when it said, when the fullness of time had come, Paul wasn't messing around with that statement. I want us to look at another brief one, promise through the prophets. So when you think of looking forward to the Messiah, where we naturally go right away is probably the prophets. These are ones in the Old Testament ordained by God to share the coming, uh, share proclamation from God himself. This proclamation from God himself is clearly seen as they lead us to the rescuer. Anytime we talk the prophets talking of Jesus Christ, our minds will probably very quickly go uh, to one of two fellows, Jeremiah or Isaiah. Isaiah, the one that talks of Jesus Christ the most, the Messiah. A lot of times around Christmas time, we read this verse. Isaiah saying, he's coming. The cultural context, the historic context where this is written, I'm not gonna go into all of that right now other than to say God's chosen people, knowing the promised Messiah was coming, they were tempted to make alliances with ungodly nations, to, to side up with them. And what does Isaiah say to these, this king? What does he say? He says this, don't forget, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. Very clearly, we find in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus is called Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. I think this is more clearly defined in two chapters later. In chapter 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Clue, clue. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's coming. Isaiah is saying, he's coming. Keep your eyes open for him. He's coming. In our minds, we need to go, and I didn't walk all the way through that this morning, but you can write down Isaiah 53 because we find more clues about this Savior. So in our minds, we think a king's coming. This king is going to establish his rule with might. Well, Isaiah adds to the story a little bit. Do you remember Isaiah 53? He's going to come and he's going to suffer like a lamb going to the slaughter. Do you remember this? Another clue. We'll get another clue of what that bruising is going to look like. The bruising in Genesis 3, his heel will be bruised. Isaiah's adding a little bit more to that clue saying he's going to come like a, a sheep going to the slaughter. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what's the point here? The point is this, 
the scriptures is very intentional about unfolding God's almighty plan. In Galatians 4, we find this, when the fullness of time had come, and what's happening through human history, God Almighty, as revealed in the scriptures, has given us clues about this Savior all along the way. From the beginning, promise to Adam and Eve, a promise that Satan would be crushed. We're looking for the rescuer. Is the rescuer Moses or Abraham? No, but Abraham and Moses are going to point you to the rescuer. Oh, certainly the rescuer is David, the king. No, but David's going to point you to the rescuer. Okay, it's got to be. We go through the judges. It's got to be one of them. No, it's got to be one of the prophets. No, they're going to tell you about the rescuer, but they're not the rescuer. Then 400 years of silence. You remember this in human history. And then what happens? In the fullness of time. God sent forth his son to be born of a woman, to be born under the law. We could stop right there and just meditate this morning on the fact that God has a plan. But but I think we would not do justice to the text. Because the text doesn't stop there, does it? If we look... At the text, we say this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, the first phrase in verse five, to redeem those who are under the law. What is Christmas about in God's perspective? Well, very clearly, the birth of Christ was the right time to reveal, to unveil the rescuer. But also, The birth of Christ was the right time, the exact right time in human history to initiate the redemptive plan, to start the redemptive plan. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. What is this concept of redemption? There's a couple words used in the Greek New Testament for redemption. There's one that really highlights the concept of a slave being bought at the slave market. Uh, The word used in this passage isn't naturally the one that that's used for, although it does at times talk of this. The whole concept of redemption is to deliver, to liberate. From God's perspective, the birth of Christ was the time to initiate the redemptive plan on earth, to liberate to free those who are under bondage. And that's very clearly what this passage says. Who are to be redeemed? Those who are under the law. A lot of discussion on this point, but I'll just go forward by saying this is those who are under the obligation to keep God's holy law, a.k.a. everyone in this world. We are under God's holy law. Everyone born to this world is under the obligation to meet up to God's holiness. The law, God's law, very clearly saying two things. Number one, we can't do it. And number two, Jesus can do it. How does Christ redeem us, those who are under the law? So this pastor says, to redeem those who are under the law. 
If you would write down a passage under this point, it's the chapter previous. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. In context, this clearly defines how Christ redeemed us. I love this. If if you could just follow along as I read, or, or even just listen as I read. Chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, here it is, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That tree is the cross. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, he's going right back to Abraham. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through what? Faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how does Christ redeem us? Christ redeems us through paying our curse on the cross of Calvary. And now we place our faith and trust in his finished work on the cross. Essentially, if you want to put it this way, Christ was born to die. Christ was born to die. Practically in this text, and I want to kind of work through this quickly now. In this text, how does this redemption translate to believers? How does this redemption, to redeem those who are under law, how is it clearly defined here? Well, if you look again with me at verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law, and here's how it happens. By transforming slaves to sons, Paul gives some amazing metaphors here. The redemption happens by transforming slaves to sons. And then once you're a son, once you're an heir, he establishes you, secures your position through the indwelling Holy Spirit. I love this. What does the passage say? To redeem those who are under the law. So that we might receive adoption, brothers and sisters in Christ. Going from being sinners, separated from the holiness of God, now to being called sons of God. He's adopted us. I know there's several families in this church that have gone through this process of adoption. How beautiful this is looking at someone and and engaging in their lives and then embracing them as your very own where someone was once not part of your family but now is fully part of your family in all aspects. That's what Paul says happened because of the birth and death of Jesus Christ. He's adopted us as sons. We have been transported from slave to son. Verse 6 up here in the middle. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but you are a son, and you are an heir through God. I mean, when I read this, my, my mind just says, wow, did I just really read that? Through Christ's miraculous birth, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection, he has done a couple things for me. By his grace, he's transformed my life from slave to son. And what has secured that transformation? 
is the spirit that lives in my heart, in my life, to never leave me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Paul in Ephesians says it is the security, the down payment, the seal of a relationship with God. God's Holy Spirit will never leave you, will never leave me. Even through those darkest times in my life where I taste of the rebellion of the wicked one, the Holy Spirit of God is in my life yelling out to me even sometimes as a whisper, come back. Come back to me. Come back. What's the expression here in this passage of what the Spirit does for us? Look at the passage. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his sons into our hearts. And it could stop there, but it doesn't. Paul very clearly says something about the Spirit in our lives. Crying, Abba, Father. All the Jews knew exactly what he was talking about. This is a term of, of great affection and endearment. Um, yesterday afternoon into the evening, our, son, our, our daughter Emma, our fifth born, woke up from her nap. She goes, gets up from her mat nap much happier than she goes down for her nap. <laughs> and she ran out down the hall and I'm sitting there doing some work my computer at the kitchen table, and I look up and I hear, Daddy! She runs down the hall and gives me the biggest hug. I'm like, wow. I'm going to tell you, that is what the Holy Spirit of God does in our hearts to the Father. Father, embrace me and I embrace you, Abba, Father. What is the Spirit of God doing in our lives? It is driving us to the Father, driving us to the love of the Creator. And now we come full circle. Christmas, in the perspective of God Almighty, is this. He is reveal, he's, he's, he's revealing the Rescuer. He was initiating the redemption plan, and this redemption plan is creating new creations that are coming to him with open arms saying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Father, grow us. Father, teach us. Father, let us serve in your name. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we think about what happens at Christmas, Christmas is so much deeper than just a couple lights on a, on a tree. It's so much deeper than the beauty of all those houses with all the lights on them. We love looking at them. We love, we love this time of year. Tis the season. It's so much different than the packages we wrap, the food we eat. Christmas, from God's perspective, is his time historically to unveil the rescuer. We go through a passage like this. We want to kind of summarize our thoughts as we go today. Kind of bring it down to a summary thought. And here's, here's what I would say from this passage. We'd have to leave with something like this. We must fully embrace God's promised rescuer. What's our responsibility? Very clearly, in Galatians, it is by faith receive this rescuer. Embrace this rescuer. 
if we were to advance this thought a little bit in my mind in regard to the context of this sermon, since Christmas is clearly about God's plan of rescue, since the birth of Christ is clearly about unveiling the rescuer, rescuer, what is my responsibility? What is your responsibility if you're here today listening intently? What can you do about this? And I would say, by faith, embrace the rescuer. Embrace the one who can rescue our soul. So what? Can we leave this morning with a couple questions? One of them being this. Have I placed my faith in the rescuer? The one who was born to die so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Have you placed your faith and trust in the rescuer, Jesus Christ? My exhortation is this. If you're here today, it is not a mistake. God wanted you here today. There may be some sitting here today that have been wrestling with this thought of my eternal standing before a holy God. Would you settle that today? Would you come to this holy God with a heart of faith, asking God to transform your life in repentance? Would you come to the Savior today? Come to the rescuer who from the beginning of time, the creation of the world, the fall of Adam was promised, this rescuer promised to come and now born to die and now raised to provide new life for you? Would you embrace this rescuer? There are some young ones here today, some teenagers, some young adults. This world and Satan, the master deceiver, is trying to tell you, don't trust this rescuer. Don't believe this rescuer. And I am here today to stand before you and essentially plead that you would trust this rescuer. Trust him with your life. Trust him eternally. There, have been, there are some in this room that have trusted him for your salvation. You've come to him in grace and by grace through faith. You've come to him. You've called on him to save you. You are his child. The question for those of us who are in that situation is this. Do I place my faith in the rescuer daily? Will you place your faith in the rescuer this week? What am I talking about? Will you walk in faith every moment of every day this week? When temptation rears its ugly head, will you take it by faith to the rescuer? When anger and bitterness swells up inside you, will you take it by faith to the rescuer? When fears and doubt and anxiety want to cripple you as soon as you open your eyes in the morning, will you take it by faith to your rescuer? When you are tempted to make life revolve around you, will you take it by faith to your rescuer? When you are tempted to prove your dominance over anyone and everyone, will you take that pride by faith to your rescuer? During this Christmas season, let us never forget God's perspective. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born 
to redeem.